Is there anyone who doesn't have the book? Okay, well, we won't share then. We're on page 36, the second paragraph. Are we going alphabetically? Yes. Who's up, really? You are. Okay. So that means me. Okay. Yeah. What then does this have to do with the problems of romantic love? Simply this. The Dhamma puts the delights and torments of love into perspective so that we can break the illusion of love as the highest of aspirations and most essential of desires. Paradoxically, such disillusionment is the key to treating others better with true benevolence and a sympathetic understanding of human needs. Ordinarily, we believe, and most of mankind seems to take for granted, that love is an innate, spontaneous skill that merely requires suitable objects and opportunities, a skill that we might practice with perfect success irrespective of any blemishes on our own character or deficiencies in our understanding. But no virtue can stand in isolation. No fruit can reach full sweetness without adequate water and soil and sunlight. The facts of human life are mutually dependent and mutually conditioned. Thus, to act with consistent goodness, we must set about becoming worthy persons. And to do that, we must recognize reliable principles and shape our thoughts, words, and deeds accordingly. How shall we accomplish that without effort? We have instincts for bad as well as for good, so we ought not to count on luck alone. We must know ourselves before we presume to know another and demand quotas of romance, tenderness, attention. By knowing ourselves in the practice of the we can come to contest the supposed supremacy of passion. How could a trembling mercurial mass of emotions be the richest of treasures? It cannot match the serenity and purity of Nibbana, which does not change and does not disappoint. If love is to refresh us and uplift us at all, it must be realistically considered and not fantastically worshipped. Through the day-to-day -day practice of basic virtues, it should, be, it should be made better, made sound, made right. To do that, we should examine all its aspects in ourselves and discard the unhelpful, the admixtures of conceit, greed, self-importance, etc. Our ambiguous motives require sharp attention. Are we mostly intent on giving or receiving? Conscious of the world transcending Dhamma, of the incomparable release of Nibbana, we should raise our standards and purify our conduct in all respects, both for our own advancement and for the pleasing of others. Gold in its natural state is full of impurities, but the goldsmith refines it 
cleanses it, purifies it, works it into a state of beauty and luster. Similarly, the follower of the Dhamma takes his or her own compassionate and kindly tendencies and purifies them, improves them, and works them into something better. Well, I'd like to ask a question. Um, in the last paragraph, he talks about doing all this without effort, and it sounds like a lot of effort. And it also sounds kind of like, you know, what we have been calling a self-improvement program. Yeah. Okay. Like I'm sorry, what? Yeah. So I think you're he's... saying it, it feels effortful to you? It feels effortful, yeah. And also something that is really hard to do. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, but not necessarily the way to, to achieve that. Like what we've been talking about that I really like is that the Eightfold Path is what noble people have done as opposed to something that you can just like, today I'm going to be a better person and I'm going to do this and this and this and this. Okay. Well, so he's, he's saying this is more about investigation than about trying to be a better person. Okay, so asking the questions. Are, are we mostly intent on giving or receiving? So, right. Yeah. Okay, we can try that. And we should raise our standards and purify our conduct in all respects. So this is, this is very much a Theravadan view, you know, we should keep, um, polishing and perfecting ourselves. This reminds me of the, um, the part of, oh, I can't remember which ancestor, but where they have a poetry contest and the one, the one student writes about polishing the mirror and no, let no dust settle. Yeah. And the other guy who wins in the end says, We're not. no mirror, no dust. Mm. Right. Right. So, and that's very much in the Mahayana tradition. That would be disputed in the Theravadan tradition. Really well, is, how about the idea of, that he's saying of no effort? Is he borrowing that from the... I think that's a, that's a hypothetical question. How should we do this without effort? He's saying that the, you need effort. Yeah, you need effort. It's not going oh, to... Oh, so, so we would say do it without effort. Well, I don't, I, we wouldn't be talking about this in this way. So it's impossible to say. Okay. But, um, but he, he's saying it's not possible to do it without effort. We have to make an effort, right? We have instincts for bad as well as for good. So we can't count on just things happening. Okay. To practice, to practice does require a certain amount of effort. I mean, like to get yourself up in the morning and things like that. Yeah. yeah, there's no question about that. No, but you know, I don't think that anybody says that you don't make any effort on either side, either the Mahayana side or the Theravadan side. But on the Mahayana side, the, they would say, um, effort can't bring you to realization. It's when you stop the efforting, right? But if that doesn't mean at the same time, you just lie around and do nothing. So that's the paradox of it. 
Well, there's that th that thing, he who speaks does not know, he who knows does not speak, which suggests that you need to speak if you don't know. I think it's wholehearted, but with that, it's without any ego, you know, and without any attachment to some outcome. So effort without desire, as it says in the sutra. Peg, what do you make out of the the last part of that sentence that you you quoted about raise our standards and purify our conduct in all respects, both for our own advancement and for the pleasing of others? Um, yeah, that stuck out for me too. <laughs> yeah, because if you're um, he's he's talking about romantic relationships, so obviously you want to please your partner, right? And what's the best way to do that? Yeah, I think that's a that's a path that's I think laced with a lot of um, that's fraught with a lot of potential problems. There, if you're if you're just out to please please somebody else, and it's but you're um, not. It's for your own. No, I know. It's a, he he's listing both, but I mean, just the just the idea that that's even a part of it. Um, you know, it's for the advancement and for the pleasing of others. Uh, this, I don't know, that this sort of stuck out to me as being, um, you know, other motivated in a way that may not be you know, like perfectly like wholesome or in alignment with your own. I don't um, think it's, I don't think it means that. I don't, I don't think it has to do with that. I think it's, um, this is, I mean, this is one point where there's an intersection with uh, the Mahayana side because um, it's really talking about um, those qualities that make it possible for us to be, to serve others. So skillful oh. <laughs> means and uh, moral conduct and abiding in the precepts and um, all of that, we don't do just so that we can be a better person, right? No, right. But I, I just think the way it's worded, I mean, certainly, it was, in my view, there's sort of like a double-edged sword. I mean, you, if you're in a relationship with somebody, you would like to um, be connected to them in a way where the interaction is pleasing. But the way, the way this, I guess, is worded, the way it comes across to me is that your, goal, your motivation is to please them as opposed to um, like you're trying to get their approval basically, which I, I think is, is, a, is a difficult. Yeah, I don't read that into it at all. No, okay. I don't read that, no. We should raise our standards and purify our conduct in all respects, both for our own advancement and for the pleasing of others. I don't, I don't get that out of it. I mean, I, I think that's an overlay. Could be. I think, I think he's saying, <laughs> You know, we're talking in the context of romantic relationships. In order to have healthy romantic relationships, you need to have this um, kind of refinement or um, uh, purification of conduct or whatever um, in order to have healthy relationships that are, and, and we're, since we're talking particularly in the co uh, context of romantic relationships, in order to please others. So, that's what's pleasing to people, at least who are healthy and wholesome and so forth, the kind of people you would want to be related with. 
So it's not, I don't think it's about any kind of pandering. I don't think it's anything like that. I think it's really about, oh, if you want to be a good partner, then you can't be mired in immoral conduct or you can't be, you know, we really have to examine the ways in which our own um, conditioning gets in the way. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with that. I, I mean, I, I took, I read into that maybe something, I don't think I was alone. I heard someone speak up and say, they, <laughs> they, yeah, because they, there's yeah. a lot of that that's built into our culture, you know, um, the concept of, uh, seeking the approval of others and the problems of seeking the approval of others. But I don't think that's really what quite what he means here. And if we think about it in terms of sympathetic joy, you know, bringing joy to your partner brings joy to yourself as well. It multiplies it exponentially, I think. Yeah. Shall we proceed or? Yes, yes, let's go ahead and we'll see where he goes with this. Understanding and practice of the Dhamma does not destroy our capacity to love or appreciate love, far from it. The Dhamma can purge the grasping selfish qualities from our love and make it purer and nobler. As we come to understand through personal experience the rightness and goodness of the path of the Dhamma, of Dhamma we may also discover, slowly or suddenly, that the voracious de desires we previously thought to be the only purposes for our existence are really not so, and that something of wondrous value surpasses them, indistinct as yet, but flashing out now and again from the clouds of possibility. When we lean hard, seeking to take and keep we will fall hard, such is the nature of grasping. But when we do not lean, when instead we hold ourselves upright, looking at the world with undeflected eye, the goodwill we have flows out of us without weakening us. This is meta, loving kindness without selfishness. It becomes pure as we realize it is not the purest. It becomes happier as we realize it is not the happiest. Nibbana surpasses all. If through our own ripening knowledge we recognize that our ultimate and highest purpose as conscious beings should be Nibbana, the absolute end of greed, hatred, and delusion, then all goals beneath that take on a new and truer coloring. When we have something to live for that is higher than fame, wealth, comfort or health, higher even than love, we can never be utterly impoverished or ruined. We are then in fact in, this, in a much better position to enjoy whatever may be intelligently achieved in life because we no longer depend solely on changeable circumstances for our happiness. Minds change, passions cool, opportunities disappear, quarrels flare up, calamities separate us from the good and the worthy. So if we are to escape repeated grief, we must not go on investing ourselves vainly and obsessively in what is perishable. We need to keep our minds and consequently our actions as free as possible from craving and attendant defilements. While we cannot cut off these harmful conditions at once by an act of will, 
We can certainly loosen their frightful grip on us by following the path and paying attention to the deliverance that shines at its end. Love is never the poorer for being accompanied by wisdom. Agony We're not hearing endure. you. We're not hearing you, Darcy. No, I can hear you, just need to be louder. She's muted. Oh, now she's not. How about now? Yeah. That's much better. Okay. Let me take my headphones out then. Yeah, the headphones uh, problem often. Love is never the poorer for being accompanied by wisdom. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It is not harmed by being denied a crown. The agonies we endure and inflict in the name of love come from making love bear too heavy a weight, from recklessly heaping our ambitions, fears, desires, and loneliness on top of another person, another who is as changeable as we are. It is natural to form attachments to other people, but the pain produced from these attachments will vary according to our wisdom and maturity. If we see nothing higher at all and plunge thoughtlessly into the conflict of gaining and losing, we will surely suffer. But if we keep the ideals of the Dhamma before us, peacefully contemplating the transience of things, we will ride more securely over the waves of fortune. According to Buddhism, Everything that has the characteristic of arising also has the characteristic of ceasing. So it is best to set our aim on Nibbana, that deliverance beyond all concepts and limits, which does not arise and thus does not cease, does not fluctuate with the momentary universe. An independent mind aspiring to this deliverance is not a chilly, unfeeling mind, but a mind whose goodness is uncalculated, beneficent, free, less and less shaken by the furious hunger of ego. If we keep the windows of the mind open to the streaming light of Dhamma, then that light will bathe our thoughts and actions and distinguish the skillful from the foolish. Even without understanding of the Dhamma, most of us will distinguish in theory between mere superficial attraction and true love. We think of superficial attraction or whimsical desire as capricious, irresponsible, and shallow, and true love is mature, serious, and steady, although in life it is hard to tell where one ends and the other begins. At least we recognize some advantage in clear sight and reflection, and this recognition grows sharper with training in Dhamma. We must become less inclined to throw ourselves at the feet of an admired person and more prepared to stand up straight, honest, mindful, ready to meet our fortune bravely. 
To a world that knows nothing loftier than the convulsions of craving, this might seem a loss, but one who truly experiences the refreshment of wisdom will gather the strength to throw off fear and selfishness and gain a peace surpassing all earthy, earthly calculations. I'm curious, Eric, is this what you were talking about? Not, not throwing yourself at the feet, but being authentic? Yeah. Yeah, this seems, I mean, the way, again, I, maybe I read in too much to the other part, but this, in my mind, is a different perspective than what was written before. But like, this is, this is the way it's worded here. I would like, I mean, I relate to this, but this is a, a refinement maybe of what he was saying earlier. But yeah, this is what I was getting at. Romantic love reaches its natural expression in marriage the formal commitment of two people to share their lives, to trust and take care of one another. But this is by no means an automatic process. Marriage does not ensure the continuation of love, but only the opportunity for it. As always in the Buddhist view, blessings depend on conditions and appear or disappear according to the nature of our thoughts, words, and deeds. Just as we cannot rely on love as an abstract power to make us happy, we cannot count on marriage simply as an institution that will relieve us of the daily necessity to work hard to get along with someone else. The satisfaction and joys of spouse, children, and family are products both of affection and intelligence. A person loves and tries rationally to adjust to another person's needs. The elemental attraction between the sexes cannot by itself maintain a harmonious relationship. Understanding, tolerance, thoughtfulness, tact, and a host of other virtues and talents are required of husband and wife every day until it becomes plain, or should become plain, that the perfection of love means ultimately the perfection of one's own character. Thus, we are brought back once again to the Dhamma, to the examination of our own flaws and the need to overcome them. We cannot repair our defects by ignoring them or blithely assigning them to the care of another. We cannot love wisely as long as we pretend we have no other duties. It is the noble person who can truly benefit others as well as himself so we ought to be intent on the path leading to nobility. So uncertain is the world and so changeable the mind that even under advantageous circumstances, there is no guarantee that love will be returned satisfactorily or at all, or that it will last long, or that it will produce nothing but joy. When we depend on it entirely for our happiness, we must tremble in the shadow of pain, however agreeable our, seemingly, our seeming security. What if we should lose our heart's support tomorrow? We are safe as long as we have each other. We assure ourselves dream, dreamily, dreamily. But how long will that be? Dissension, time, distance? 
change, and finally death dissolves all alliances, plunging the unwary into despair and desolation. And if we have no wisdom, we too may go drifting about the lonely streets with our eyes staring desperately into other eyes and seeing the same desperation there. When we suffer the pains of broken love, it helps to reflect on the impermanence, not just of love, but of those very pains. They are transitory phenomena, not self, with no more power to harm us than what we surrender to them. Plundering time, which wrenches from us what we cherish, breaks up also our present misery, and the more easily as we resolve to practice patience. With mindfulness well-established, we can refrain from adding new momentum to upset feelings. When a boat sails across a lake, the churning wake spreads out, subsides, and vanishes with natural ease. What purpose would there be in trying to keep the water stirred up? The lake left undisturbed grows calm again. In the way of the Buddha, we can find relief from distress and grief. In wisdom, there is security. Because love is fragile, it cannot protect us forever. But if we relax our grip, it may bloom even better, allowing us to give and receive without encumbrance, frenzy, or fear, offering to each other our strength instead of our weakness. When we have Nirvana as our highest goal, we gain freedom in our relationships now. We will not suffocate one another, we will be glad to help one another along the path. In a sense, the practice of Dhamma is like gradually filling the... Yeah. Sorry. Uh, in a sense, the practice of Dhamma is like gradually filling the abyss of ignorance with knowledge until that terrible vacuum is neutralized and the heart cries no more for unknown comfort. The loving kindness of the who has grown wise by experience and reflection is just the overmeasure, the radiance of his goodness, quite purified of vacillation, selfish, self, selfishness, and visceral wanting. Well, we cannot do, kind of instantly do away with our weaknesses. We can consciously elevate our intentions, straighten our conduct, and contemplate the virtues of the Buddha and the Noble Ones who are free from craving. Their achievement is an image to set before our inner eye, something higher to live for, within and beyond the motions of our conventional business. No good thing prospers long in ignorance. The better we understand this flawed universe, the more skillfully we can live and the happier we will be. We love best when we do not love out of desperation. I think it's back to you, Anne. After the snow and the melting, after the long cold rains, the river swells and bulges over its banks, changing the shape of the country. Old islands go awash or under, the shore crags are made, of, are made islands, marshy woodlands become new channels for the river. We scout for landmarks, but this mingling of earth and water makes us wonder if we remember rightly, if the flood has not obliterated time or cast the world far back to its muddy belongings. 
We stand here where spring has not quite begun in the pale primeval sun and north wind and our senses swing like the needle of a shaken compass. What does the fluttering of our consciousness signify? All this thinking, this habitual noise we take as a self seems lost in the greater speech of nature around us or would be lost perhaps if we could let go of it now. If we could let go of it now, so immense and strange is the changing of the tumbling river. There used to be a path along this bank, or a boulder of memorable shape, or a tangle of vines, or a grove of beeches with mysterious shade. Where are they? We gaze at the cold spines of alien forest and the maze of waters, and there is little that seems familiar. A woodpecker wraps out a theme on dead wood high in the air. Lost, lost, lost. Or maybe it is only the wild vibration of things in their true state, quite innocent of messages. Today is neither winter nor spring, neither cloudy nor clear. Just a place in a moment stripped to the bone. All markers disarrayed. The very words in our minds flapping like rags on a thorn. <laughs> Just over a little hill, if we did not dream it, highways and electric wires tie the world together, and there waits the routine we came from and to which we mean to return. But here it is harsh flood time, and the river has risen, dragging the beaches away, shoving flotsam up and up the banks, bending the willows, overrunning the lowlands, and pouring as well through the hearts of all mindful watchers. If the words, if the woods are strange and the shoreline desolate, if stone, earth, and wood may be so scoured and changed, so must be the frail, ticking life of human beings. Around us in this hour, the elements are not storming, but we come to feel a wrench, half of fear, half exhilaration, as if the river promises to smash the nest of our opinions and scatter all the little twigs away. Clumsy and short of breath in our erratic rambling, we wonder at the manifest impermanence of nature, the caved banks of streams, the wrecked log bridge, the deep silt over last year's picnics. In flood time, we see everywhere the upset of the ordinary and remember that the human creature with its seemingly important business has the same destiny as the flooding, as the floating clots of leaves. The sliding sky and dissolving earth put to shame the impertinence of imagining. I am this, I have that, I will do as I like. What shall we ever stir but a few puffs of dust. What do we know really but the trivial murmur of our own puny thoughts? Still in the clean air of the vast restless season, in the awesome and refreshing solitude, a rare free mood springs up quivering like a candle flame. Together with the metamorphosing country, 
We are changing whether we like it or not. And in this instant, our history seems trivial and the day's prospects infinite. We stand shifting our feet on the soft ground and wondering if something is required of us besides patience. Wondering if we could escape the swamp of appearances and someday find our peace in a new unsorrowing country. Maybe we would just wait and dream of deliverance as we always have done. But today the sun is unstable and the wind sharp. Must we not come to terms with flood time as it is? Are we still marooned in fantasies, disoriented by the mind's unceasing internal flood? We seem to be engaged in laboriously translating the ineffable facts of experience into crude symbols of thought and speech, a, tiresome a tiring business. And if only the sun would burn a little warmer, we might bound up the staircase of our desire into the heavens. But the barbarous icy waters have despoiled the banks, drowned the fields, invaded the woods. So from where shall we start climbing? Beauty and ugliness, open despair, liking and disliking are swirling before us in the muddy current of the river, waiting to be pulled out and molded into an ordinary life once again. But we are weary of them. They have never given us the shelter we longed for. Where then shall we turn? Like other small, routed creatures of the shore, we are caught in a crisis, ready to migrate, but fearful of the change. Isn't that a great paragraph for this time? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ellen, you're muted. No, no, it's Donna. No, Donna just finished. It's me. Ah, okay. Um, Self-esteem back in the remembered world depended on being noticed, on keeping up the fiction that we are important, substantial and admirable. But out here, the wind and the sun and the great wet earth esteem nothing and notice nobody. It is just a fresh, free day at the beginning of ages, and whoever goes wandering through these woods had best leave all baggage behind. Our notion of self has become a grievous burden that sinks our heels in mud and oppresses our hearts with a thousand imperatives. We must nurse, protect, and entertain this self, acquiesce to its appetites and aversions, and constantly <coughs> affirm its worth and its worth and preeminence. But what good will it do us when we try to leap these streams of flood time? Watching the country swept away before us, we sense the triviality and falseness of the self and wonder if it would be possible to expunge it entirely from our thoughts, to shrug off the weight of delusion and at once rise to a level above all floods. Perhaps the heart goes a little faster. The imagination swims with possibilities. Even an undesired crisis might be turned to a blessing. Where shall we go? Where to direct the mind? 
We have our theories, but maybe they are only so much conceit, only cobwebs thrown to catch a leviathan. Does the world offer us any clues? If we watch and listen intently, we may be sure that it does. The woodpecker with its on and off knocking, the mix of sun and shadow in the woods, the dry beech leaves buzzing in the wind, the busy water carving earth, they all declare the nature of things. They all preach true dhamma. Cut off for now from manufactured comforts, wrenched by the turn of seasons, we cannot suppress the upwelling of a question. We cannot keep from blurting to the unconscious river. Why am I so lost? And with the words loosed and blown across the sky like leaves, we find ourselves already drawn on to track down an answer, as if the admission of our ignorance somehow commits us to the search for wisdom. <laughs> Reflecting all this chaotic change in nature, we see that the instability runs deeper than we imagined, that we who are wondering about the fleeting show are ourselves rushed on like sticks in a flood. It becomes impossible as we scan the distances, as we inspect the spinning flotsam, as we review our thoughts, to find anything that does not change and pass away. We have till now given so little attention to this universal flux that we have failed to understand the laws that work upon us and being slothful or indifferent or simply careless, we have again and again crashed against huge, frightening questions of pain and longing. Now in this wilderness of time, a flood has orphaned us on a strange beach that is itself crumbling into the stream and wet nature repeats to our senses what we might have learned long before as doctrine. All formations are impermanent. It was one thing to read the words in the quiet of our rooms and another to stand here cold and beleaguered in the midst of unstoppable change. We can go back, of course, back to the semi-oblivion of amusements, but that will not resolve the crisis, only hide it for a time. Or we can attend to the Dhamma and begin to make our way across the wilderness toward security. All formations are impermanent, a somber thought, and yet an invigorating one. All landscapes <coughs> and edifices, pleasure and laughter, dreams and fancies, all by minutes and centuries are collapsing, wilting, reforming, becoming different. All formations are suffering. So said the Buddha, and so we come to see as we study the moral flaws in all we value and in all we regard as mere background. Then if formations of mind and matter are impermanent and if they are flawed and unsatisfactory, what should we think of the areas confection of all, the self or ego? How it weighs upon us when we cannot even see it or touch it or demonstrate its reality. All things, said the Buddha, are non-self. The mighty I we have served so long as a mere figure of speech, a mass of nothing, 
And when we cling to it, we stagger beneath an imagined burden. We groan under delusion. We do not like to think of ourselves as deluded, though we suspect our neighbors of that failing. But in the abstract, at least, it is not hard to understand that if we have to, that if we have to some extent misapprehended or misinterpreted our experience, then the theories we have constructed and relied upon may actually be misleading us. We are accustomed to blaming other people or external forces for our confusion because it is more agreeable to do so than to examine the disconcerting possibility that our own minds are faulty. We realize we do not have perfect bodies that are impervious to illness or frailty, yet we assume we have minds that consistently and adeptly grasp reality. We believe we have a self or are a self of some kind. And since it is I, we are reluctant to consider that it might be changeable. Confused, amorphous, and ultimately illusory. Thus, we become confirmed in error. <clears throat> Seeking for a self among the process of mind and body. Processes of mind and body is like seeking for an entity called music among or within the musicians and instruments of an orchestra. When they have stopped playing, we might step forward and demand to see the source or hiding place of the symphony we have just heard. We have experienced music. So we might insist that it exists on its own as a discrete thing. And yet, when we come to look, all we can find is an assortment of people, chairs, instruments, and pieces of paper. We cannot find any germ or nugget of symphony curled inside a horn or a violin, or nesting in a musician's pocket, or squeezed among the, between the pages of the score. Obviously, there is no self to a piece of music, comes into being depending on many conditions. The work of a composer, written directions, machines for production of sound, the efforts of the players, etc., and ceases when those conditions are dispersed. In the same way, the self or ego we think we are exists only in a manner of speaking, only in a conventional and illusory sense. Ultimately, no I can be found, only a compound of factors working together temporarily. A person, a living being, can be described as Nama Rupa, mentality and material form. Mentality is a collection of processes of perceiving, knowing, thinking, desiring, willing, etc. Material form here is the physical material aspect of a person, the gross substance of the body with its physical properties. These two mutually supportive aspects act together to carry out the functions of life. Nama, mentality, forms an intention, and Rupa, material forms, walks. Nama is hungry, and Rupa eats. The eye receives light, and the mind experiences vision. Mentality by itself lacks motive power. Material form or body can sit, stand, walk, eat when directed, but it cannot know or feel or understand anything. Both the mental and the material are impersonal and selfless. 
through their combination, there comes to be the complex of activities we call sentient life. This is one way of looking at the makeup of the person who now hikes along the soggy bank and wonders at the makeup of the river. The Buddha's analysis goes further, describing life in terms of five aggregates or groups, khandas, material form or body, rupa again, along with four mental aggregates, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. These are not enduring independent entities of any kind, just classes of processes constantly changing. The Buddha analyzes them, moreover, into various subclasses, explaining their particular functions, pointing out their interdependent nature, and their emptiness or impersonality. The person is a built-up, ever-changing compound of activities in which no security, permanence, or self can be found. Therefore, one who wishes release from sorrow, escape from the flood, must give up the profitless clinging to shadows and learn to look with objectivity. The Buddha shows that whatever is impermanent is fundamentally unreliable and unsatisfactory and that whatever is impermanent and unsatisfactory cannot reasonably be taken as a self, an enduring identity. Accordingly, a new attitude toward all these aggregates is called for. Therefore, monks, any material form whatsoever, any feeling, any perception, any formation, any consciousness whatsoever, whether past, future, or present, in oneself or external, coarse or fine, inferior or superior, far or near, should all be regarded as it actually is by right understanding. Thus, this is not mine. This is not what I am. This is not myself. Our life is far more complex, compounded, and dynamic than we have been accustomed to think. As long as we defend the supposed durability and reality of the I, we afflict our minds with delusion and continue to misunderstand the world and to suffer. Events stream past in chaos and pain because we try to set this I apart and preserve it from the universal cycle of arising and passing away. But there is nothing here to be preserved but delusion. We build a fortress of selfhood out of passionate ignorance, but are forced to watch its walls wrecked again and again by woes and griefs. With an ancient desperation, knowing no better, we rebuild with the same wretched bricks. If we can seriously take up the provocative idea that our self is only a sort of fiction, can we discover a new way to live? If we are mistaken in claiming a solitary, durable identity, should we instead try somehow to merge with the rest of the universe, to attach our personality to a greater whole? When a crisis teaches us the folly of trying to deny the transience of phenomena, we turn hopefully to such thoughts, but no satisfaction awaits us here either. Wherever we house it, an illusion is just that. Since no self is to be found in the first place, 
We gain nothing by assigning it here or there or reconceiving it as some kind of collective identity. We cannot perceive or lay hold of a self of any dimensions and hence cannot presume to do anything with it. Where there has been no separation, there can be no union. That is why, however we yearn and strain here in the weak, mystical sunlight, we will not go floating away on heavenly breezes. We have to keep working on this problematical earth. With the crisis, the flood time, suddenly upon us with nature tremendously illustrating the Dhamma, we might feel simultaneously our loneliness and our connection with other living things, living beings. Our emancipation is our own responsibility, not to be one for us by others, not even by the Buddha, but we can and should help others whose plight and whose inmost hopes we share and from whom we are not, after all, separated by shells of selfhood. Our confusion, we should understand from the Buddha's teaching, does not spring from a crazy random universe, but from our own disordered minds. If we will strive to keep down the destructive self-illusion, we will enable our minds to see more directly and accurately. Yes, there's some more striving, right? Yeah. Striving to keep down the destructive self-illusion. What then does the mind see? It sees things in their actual nature. That is, is impermanent, unsatisfactory, and entirely empty of a self or ego. It sees without bias or passion the coming and going of conditioned phenomena. What then becomes of the person of me? Is the person one thinks oneself to be in fact non-existent? Few of us relish the idea of non-existence, but the problem is only apparent, a result of the way we misinterpret our experiences. A human being exists as a dynamic combination of material form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. There is, no, there is no need and no room for a despotic ego or self. When the conceit of self has been eradicated by deep insight, impurities such as greed, hatred, and delusion no longer have a point to stick to, no longer a foothold for destructiveness. When the heart becomes light and pure and certain it will not sink in any flood. The teachings of Buddhism are carried by words, by symbols that point to living verities in forest and river, mind and matter. To see these verities is to see the Dhamma, and to see the Dhamma is to see the Buddha. Both timelessly point toward deliverance past all the ditches and fences of opinion toward a pure landscape uncontaminated, uncontaminated, uncontaminated by self-conceit. 
words and experience are not the same, but they are complementary, together impelling us on the path to liberation. What we need is neither intellectual mastery nor mindless abstraction, but a vivid understanding born from the application of our faculties to the roiling world before us. All blooming, fading, changing, flying phenomena preach true Dhamma, but they preach only to the listening, ready mind. Our duty must be to listen and understand and act in faith. Because, because we are alive and conscious, because we dwell in continual contradiction between desires and results, we must from time to time face a crisis, the convergence of great currents within us, the breakdown of pretense, the momentary clearing of our eyes. <coughs> Excuse me. Then we have to make our choices whether to retire deeper into diversions until the shudder of uncertainty passes or to set out on the wild waters of knowledge on the raft of Dhamma. Within us, the ghost of self urges retreat. And yet, having glimpsed a little of those far clean spaces, how could we give up now? What faith is it that never builds to action? What courage that never engages fear? Along the riverbank, the world seems scarcely begun. Green buds are fat but unburst. The climbing vines asleep in the, three in the tree limbs they will soon decorate. The birds few and sweet-voiced, but the great river is at work undermining the roots of trees. Some have fallen to the surging flood, more will fall. The rushing, sighing, pouring sounds fill up space almost like silence, fill up the observer and the observed. Where are we now in a flood time, a raw new day? And we have this moment to reflect, this transparent moment when we stand and listen and make no noise and concoct no frantic dreams. But nature will not pause and the river will not cease from flowing, and we must act. Now in a chattering of twigs and leaves, the wind comes at us through the forest, fierce and cold and turbulent with life. Six other travelers. The practice of Buddhism should lead us out of self-absorption in more ways than one. The untaught ordinary person, as the Pali text frankly put it, has a misguided love for himself or herself and, a con and, a consequence, and as a consequence, a misguided and very imperfect love for other creatures. The world in our preferred arrangement is people chiefly with me and secondarily with others who provide conflict, interest, diversion, and finally, definition of a substantial universe. Narrowly imagining our own benefit, we tend to regard other beings benevolently to the extent that they accommodate us and please us. We hate them to the extent that they block our will. What could be more natural? 
This is our habit, our tradition, which insight must penetrate and annul. It should become apparent, even to the novice on the Buddhist path, that ordinary notions of self and what should belong to self are impediments to understanding and eventual liberation. Buddhist moral discipline, philosophy, and meditation all aim at undercutting and destroying these notions. Living beings are streams of transitory physical and mental events that, though different in outward characteristics, have the same nature of ignorance and confusion rushing through birth and death with no unchanging center apparent anywhere. Distinctions between living creatures being impermanent and mutable, it follows that practitioners of the Dhamma should try to avoid false self regard and act with goodwill toward others for everyone's benefit. Indeed, in Buddhist literature, we find many exhortations to compassion and friendliness. Writers of all ages have rightly praised the virtue of love for one's fellow man but have had less to say about those other beings near us who snare the same physical environment or share, <laughs> snare. Those others are of course animals. I have a question about um, some differences between Mahayana and Theravada. And when I read this, when I read this last paragraph and it talks about uh, our interactions with others is, I mean, the Mahayana view is that, um, if I understand it correctly, that um, our vow to free all, all beings is, um, you know, part is, is our practice for the sake of, for the sake of doing that. And I, and I want to clarify if that's in the Theravadan view, if the, the friendliness or the um, interactions with others is for your own benefit or not? Like, are you practicing with the intention of actually helping them or are you, are you helping, are you doing it because they're, they're a pathway to your own, uh, uh, I guess, are they, are they just a means to get to Nirvana as part of your own practice or I wouldn't, I wouldn't consider that they feel that that's an instrumentalist view of other people. Um, these qualities of friendliness and, and the Brahma Viharas are very much a part of that tradition, but there isn't the same motive for liberation of others. So it's about being kindly towards others and compassionate towards others and caring about others. You know, Theravadans build tons of hospitals and schools and all that. Um, but no, I guess what I'm asking is, is it for its own sake or is it for the promise that, like, you know, are you accumulating merit so that you can... It depends on what, you know, uh, school of Theravada thought you're, you're uh, involved in. But, you know, when they had the... Um, in the cultures where there's a very clear distinction between the monks and the householders, the monks acquire merit by teaching the Dhamma and the householders acquire merit by offering food and support to the monks. So there's a kind of um, exchange model there, um, but not all uh, Theravada schools operate that way. So 
Vipassana in this country, for example, is very different. Um, so I don't know what they would say about that, but I, don't, I, I definitely would not say that they're considering uh, their kindliness towards others as instrumental in some way. It's just part of the perfection of the virtues um, and the expression of them. Okay, thank you. Yeah. As, I think I'm, uh, who's next? Am I next? You're next. Can I ask a question real quick? Oh. Um, so Vipassana then is, is part of the Theravadan tradition? Yes. As long as we assume that only human life <coughs> has any significance, and as long as we determine, determinedly look at the world <coughs> in terms of I and what supports or opposes me, we are still engaged in this perception. And our sense of charity is likely to prove inconsistent and casual and unproductive of any deeper reflection or through moral improvement or thorough. or thorough moral improvement. It is not so hard for a sensitive and well-intentioned person to feel some degree of sympathy for other living creatures, especially affectionate pets and other <coughs> beautiful and interesting animals. But to see those other creatures as morally significant beings in their own right and to treat them with considered benevolence is somewhat more difficult and requires attention. In the case of animals, we have a good opportunity to contemplate moral complexity because animals are patently different from us and yet they share this earth with us and give evidence of being sentient beings with desires and emotions similar to our own. In Buddhism, charity towards animals is not a byproduct of human ethics, but a part of our general moral duty to all living, suffering beings, as all are caught in the wheel of birth and aging and death, samsara, all of us going on from life to life in various forms, in various planes of existence, ranging from woeful, wretched states to exalted, heavenly planes. There is no permanence, no staying forever in any one of these planes, and no assured progression from lower to higher. The Buddha teaches that existence is an endless wandering, wandering conditioned by the deeds one performs. Good deeds tend to produce fortunate rebirth, and bad deeds tend to produce unfortunate rebirth, on and on until or unless one attains enlightenment, the release to Nirvana. From the potency of enough accumulated bad deeds, we could be born as animals and perhaps have been innumerable times through uncountable eons. Human life, speaking generally, is a fortunate situation, whereas animal life is an unfortunate one, barefoot of intelligence and stricken with heavy suffering. <clears throat> Still, all unenlightened beings remain fundamentally insecure, subject to pain and death and separation from comforts. We should not therefore be complacent about our current satisfactions or neglectful of those generous actions which will help both ourselves and others. Can I ask a question? Yeah.
so is this a generally held belief in 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 all of the traditions that accumulation of bad deeds results in being reborn as an animal it it seems like it just seems like that seems odd to me but it seems like an arrogant point of view mm. oh you mean like people are better than animals yeah it's considered unfortunate in that you don't have an opportunity for enlightenment in an animal existence so there's i mean is is that is that true uh, i mean is that <laughs> I, I mean i i think it's animals seem pretty enlightened in some respects to me you know that's what's considered the case in the tradition where there are six cosmological realms and those are sometimes um taught as the realms into which you can be reborn and they're sometimes taught as that our moment to moment experience might be in any of those six realms in the animal realm in the hell realm you know in the uh, uh, warring gods realm in the um, realm of the uh, heavenly uh, beings in the you know so the human realm is considered the most fortunate even the heavenly realm isn't considered particularly fortunate because you still live and die but you don't you aren't inclined to practice because all of your desires are met so you have a very vastly expanded lifespan but at, at the end you get sick and you die so um, they don't consider that the gods are immortal and in that cosmological realm you might say oh there are times when i'm basically i'm you know scarfing down my lunch i'm basically an animal and there are times when i'm um uh, you know, really, really angry. I'm like the Ashuras, the angry God. So, so it might be moment to moment um, experience, or it might be taken as the realms you inhabit after death. And that was all explained really in the Buddha's um, uh, um, teaching that I gave on Sunday. It's not so much that there's a, um, a realm that's like an afterlife. It's more like the next life you get born into looks might look like this. So, um, so there's a, there are repercussions, there are karmic repercussions to our actions is basically what the Buddha is teaching in this life and in future lifetimes. And to be reborn into the animal realm is considered to be an unfortunate rebirth because you don't have the, um, the opportunity to hear the Dharma and to be uh, enlightened. That's the understanding. So yes, um, our pets can be very, very um, wise. They can be very loving. They can be very affectionate. They can seem to be very um, intelligent. But that's the understanding in Buddhist um, teachings that it's not a fortunate rebirth because you don't have the potential for uh, awakening. Sorry. <laughs> That's just the teaching, anyway. A brief look at some a brief look at some fundamental doctrines should show the depth of Buddhist concern for fellow beings. First of all, there's the doctrine of harmlessness, ahimsa, which which permeates the five fundamental moral precepts of the lay Buddhist. We are advised to refrain from 
one, killing, two, taking what is not given or stealing, three, sexual misconduct, four, false speech, and five, taking intoxicants. Bearing in mind the first precept, the devout Buddhist is harmless. He or she does not intentionally harm, he or she does no intentional harm to living beings. Killing enemies is not all right. Hunting animals for food or sport is not all right. Destroying troublesome creatures might seem expedient, but the doing of harm sets up a liability to future harm for the doer. All creatures desire to live and to escape pain. We are like them. They are like us. They should receive kindness at our hands. Seeing all life as caused and conditioned, changing from this form to that form, one with a peaceable heart will refrain from doing ill to any creature. Human beings are not supreme in the universe. They are, like all other beings, subject to the effects of their own deeds, and misfortune will, will follow those who indulge in violence and cruelty. A second doctrine showing Buddhist concern for animals is the fifth factor of the Noble Eightfold Path, right livelihood. In order to live a wholesome life here and now, as well as to attain ultimate liberation, one must have a blameless form of livelihood. Specifically, one should avoid occupations that involve killing, such as hunting, fishing, and slaughtering animals. One should also refrain from trading in arms, living beings, flesh, intoxicants, and poisons. In general terms, no occupation directly connected with doing harm to living beings should be pursued by one anxious to escape suffering and reach enlightenment. You're muted, Anne. <laughs> Why is this? Should we cease harming animals, even troublesome animals? Because the Buddha laid down certain standards, like all principles of good behavior in Buddhism, those of harmlessness and right livelihood arise from practical considerations. We should avoid certain actions because they naturally lead to suffering for ourselves and others as well, for ourselves as well as others. We must give thought to the encompassing law of karma, karma in Sanskrit, the law of moral cause and effect. Good deeds give rise to good results and bad to bad. Or we might say that our intentional actions tend to return to us sooner or later for benefit or for harm, depending on the character of those actions. Willfully killing or injuring an animal even a small or despised animal, even with the approval of others, is an unwholesome act which plants the seeds for future suffering. The degree to which such seeds might ripen for the doer is something impossible to predict. And certainly, the moral weight of deeds varies enormously. But we know that if we do no harm, we will start no fires of karma and that if we consistently act with compassion, we can look forward to blessings. Probably only a very small proportion of humanity 
is consciously <coughs> wantonly cruel to animals. After all, human beings cherish their pets. But what about other about such recreations as hunting and fishing? Must these be given up? Buddhist moral discipline, it should be remembered, is not a set of commands, but of precepts, trustworthy guidelines for skillful and graceful living. The Buddha points out the advantages of following them and the painful consequences of ignoring them. Hunting and fishing cause suffering and are not necessarily our neighbor, our livelihood, our happiness. It is up to us to choose. Did we miss Anne Heinen? Where did Anne Heinen go? We missed Anne Heinen. We'll pick you up this time. What's that? We'll pick you up now. Well, okay. In any discussion of killing, there inevitably arises the question of vegetarianism, because in our world, animals are killed in great numbers for food. While condemning the killing of living creatures, the Buddha did not categorically prohibit his monks from eating meat, except a few special kinds, because the bare act of eating is in, is in itself morally neutral. What, one's eat, what one eats affects one's physical organs, not one's spiritual standing. Monks, moreover, subsist on the alms given by the lady. Having entered into a dependent ascetic livelihood, they must make do with whatever food the lady is pleased to offer, using it not out of greed, but just to maintain health. The Buddha allowed monks to accept meat when it is offered unless they see, hear, or suspect that an animal has been killed specifically for them. Thus, he set practical limits to monastic responsibility. For the laity, he made no prohibitions about food. He was a religious teacher concerned with essential religious principles. Full of pity for all beings, the Buddha was concerned to teach his followers those moral truths that would lead them to consistent harmlessness and kindliness of behavior, and that would thereby benefit both them and the world at large. Intentional acts of injuring and killing are reprehensible, and the Buddha was entirely opposed to harming any creature. Those who intentionally kill act wrongly and accumulate demerit for themselves. Studying this position along with the principles of right livelihood, it is clear that in an ideal world, there would be no killing and hence no meat eating. But we do not live in such a world and must make our way as best as we can in this one. Certainly vegetarianism appeals strongly to many Buddhists nowadays for reasons of health or economics or sentiment. And to the extent that it contributes to peace of mind and body and the welfare of creatures, it should be considered beneficial. We must simply remember that voluntary restrictions on diet are external arbitrary matters, not moral absolutes, but should by no means obscure the need for restraint in our own directly intended actions. Do we kill or not kill? Do we abuse or comfort? Do we wish well or ill? These are the significant moral questions. It seems like in today's like factory farmed world that those animals are 
I mean, well, we're not monks, but so it doesn't really apply. Like you said, there's no laity restrictions in the Buddhist time even, but animals are killed specifically for us. I mean, it might not be like, oh, this one's for you, Anne, but I mean, they're, they're specifically for us to eat. So I guess, yeah. or we're not monks, so I guess it doesn't matter. I think what he was opposed to was when they would, um, when the donors would have a feast where they killed animals for to feed to the monks, you know. Um, so it was more uh, closely tied to the um, to the monks themselves. I don't know. I mean, every person has to really think about this for themselves. They really have to make a moral decision for themselves about uh, this issue. It's not. It's not given, and that's what he's saying. It's not given by the Buddha, but we have to think for ourselves about the um, the quality of harming. I mean, there's such fine distinctions made in, you know, some sort of uh, more, I would call fundamentalist Buddhist sects about the fact that if you're going to eat meat, it's better to eat a cow than to eat shrimp because you have to, because a bunch of animals have to be killed um, to feed you if you're going to eat shrimp, but one cow can feed many people, and so it's less loss of life since each life is, and there's a, you know, kind of, um, very well uh, sort of established sort of bookkeeping system around that. But I think it's really the question, I mean, when I, I became a vegetarian 30 years ago because I looked around and I thought, there's no earthly requirement for me to eat meat when there's this much food that's abundantly available. So it didn't seem, you know, and because my son asked me, why do people eat, why do people who love animals eat meat? There's not a good answer to that question, actually. So, and about that time I was, you know, starting in at uh, San Diego Zen Center. So, so there was just this sense of, yeah, this isn't really necessary. You know, if I were living in the um, Himalayas, for example, as the Tibetans do, there's no alternative. There are no vegetables. You know, there's, you're, it's rock and yaks. So, um, so those are your choices. So they have yak butter in their tea, and they and they and they have the Muslims kill the yaks. Um, so, um, so, so the Buddha was not making a hard and fast rule about this. It was very clear. Most important thing is uh, to support your ability to follow the spiritual path. Good health. So, I mean, there's some um, evidence that when people get COVID, for example, they need to eat protein and no carbohydrates. They need to eat just a lot of protein, just huge quantities of protein, way more than you can get from plant sources. They have to eat meat and they have to eat a lot of it. Um, so that, that I found really kind of interesting. So, uh, okay. Who's next? Uh Did Darcy, I think, I think Clark, I think Clark just went. Uh, are we in the second paragraph of page 57? Right. Yeah. Animals suffer abuse. Uh, I think so, yeah. Animals suffer abuse in many ways at the hands of human beings, and all of them are deplorable from a Buddhist standpoint. One sort that 
thrives in our own time is the terrible treatment of animals in scientific laboratories where multitudes of hapless creatures are made to suffer poisoning, mutilation, and death purportedly for the eventual benefit of mankind. Anyone with a sense of the interdependence of earthly life and a sympathy for the sufferings of living beings must recoil from the cruelties performed in the name of science. Even if it could be demonstrated that the tormenting of some hundreds or thousands of animals would improve the quality of chemicals or the treatment of some human disease, we would still not be justified in inflicting such pain. In Buddhist teaching, the goal in mind does not excuse the method used in reaching for it. Cruelty is never neutralized by reference to some possible future benefit. It rankles unchecked and may erupt in time. Kama, or volitional intentional action, whether or not one thinks it wrong, whether or not one forgets it, tends to produce appropriate fruit for the doer. Thus, anyone concerned for his own welfare should conscientiously refrain from inflicting suffering on living beings. There remain, <clears throat> excuse me, there remains another large question. What to do about agricultural and domestic pests? It is true that in agriculture, it is almost impossible to avoid the death of small creatures. While one might raise crops without making any attempt to destroy pests, an admirable and difficult task, small creatures may die even in the tilling of soil. Here we must distinguish between intended and unintended action. Intentional killing is always unwholesome to one degree or another, while unintentional or accidental killing is not and does not set up bad consequences in the future. A compassionate and sensible policy, then, is not to do any willful action aimed at killing or harming living creatures. If we remain doubtful about the exact nature of our intentions or are particularly determined not to bring about any harm whatever, even inadvertently, it might be prudent to pursue a different occupation. However, with regard to agriculture or any form of livelihood, we should understand that to prevent all unintended harm that might somehow follow from our actions is surely impossible. And we need not worry about what is beyond our will and control. We are simply called upon to be vigilant, sympathetic, and restrained for our own moral advancement and peace and for the well-being of other living creatures. It puts me in mind of the film, The Biggest Little Farm. Mm. about that even um even this last paragraph i think is more nuanced than what he says in the sense that you know some people let's say they're managing their their um, gut microbiome and they may have some like overgrowth of yeast or something harmful and they may intentionally kill the yeast in order to you know function um more healthfully or you know or keep their own health and so even though it's intentional, it's really at the service of something else. 
It's the same with antibiotics. Yeah, same with antibiotics. Are, yeah. are basically poisons, right? Right. So yeah. that's the question, and you and you see, oh, we're never going to find some purified place to stand and be sanctified. You know, we're always right. going to be bound up in, but we can certainly reduce the um, the impact and the harm that we cause. There's, you know, that's our intention. Right. Yeah. This was something I was contemplating. Well, this isn't the first day I've contemplated it, but what every time I go out and work in the garden, I've got worms eating their way through my Brussels sprouts and so forth. And, and I'm out there killing them. I, well, I am, you know, if I don't, they eat, they eat everything, they eat everything. So um, I don't know what to think about that. Well, for that, on that score, you would probably have to consult with someone who is more of an expert than I am. But, uh, you know, that was what the whole biggest little farm was about. Just that kind of thing, you know. Maybe you need chickens. Uh, maybe. Chickens <laughs> would cause more, more issues as well. But at any rate, <laughs> I mean, because they destroy a garden. But um, anyway, <laughs> food for thought, so to speak. Food for thought. <laughs> All right, so we'll we'll come back to this again next week and finish up this uh, this chapter. How are you liking it so far? Sometimes I like it. Sometimes I like it, I like it, and uh, sometimes it seems a little harsh or rigid or something. Hmm. Interesting. I uh, I enjoy in some of the chapters where he uses just his noticing of what's going on in nature mm -hmm. as a springboard for contemplating um, yeah. reality. Yeah, it's very poetic. I like that. Yeah, I like those parts too. Yeah. That's the part I like the best too, Gail. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. See you next week. Thank you. We'll zoom out. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye, everyone.